Well, good morning, everyone. Great to be back. And I say back because, as Mike mentioned, it's been a blessing over the years to be able to come to Westminster and preach and just be with you and to uh, get to know you. And this is just a sweet spot. I'm happy to be with you again. And as Mike indicated, one of the, the wonderful things I enjoy about being down here, in addition to friendship with Mike and many others that are here, is just that long-standing friendship between Westminster and Reformed Theological Seminary. And I know some of you have taken classes. Um, you, you may not realize, I say this every year, you could take a class, but not for credit. You can just come and enjoy it, and you get to be the happiest person in the classroom. I can tell you that. <laughs> if you were to walk around campus right now, you would see it's like the walking dead, right? It's like zombies everywhere as um, people are getting ready for final exams and papers. But you could be that person sitting in the back of the class enjoying the lectures with no stress at all. So let me uh, offer that invitation. Anytime you want to come up to Charlotte and be with us, we'd love to have you join us for a seminary class. Now today, we have this wonderful chance to be together and to ponder God's Word, and I've chosen a passage that I'm sure that many of you know very well. It's a very famous text of Scripture, probably the most famous in the book of Hebrews. So let's pause for a moment and hear what God has to say to us in Hebrews chapter 12. Uh, we're going to be looking at Hebrews chapter 12, just the first three verses, just a short little text today in our brief time, and I'm looking forward to sharing it with you. Let's listen now as we read God's Word. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which cling so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Amen. Let me pray for us as we reflect on that passage today. Lord, we realize we're in the middle of a race, whether we know it or not, whether we feel it or not. It's a race not on a human level, but on an eternal level. It's a race for life. And Lord, many of us struggle sometimes with wanting to stop running. Lord, encourage us today in this passage keep pressing on with Christ as our finish line. We pray this in his name. Amen. So some of you may know that uh, Mike Honeycutt and I happened to do our doctoral work in the same place, the University of Edinburgh in Scotland. I look back often with fond memories of my time there, and I can still remember years ago I would occasionally during the day take a break from my studies and just kind of wander the hallways of the Divinity School. And in the hallways, as you might guess, were paintings of some of the famous people that had gone before, some of the great saints of old. They had there taught God's word, and they had represented Christ, and there were paintings, and there were statues, and there were pictures and histories. And as I was at the Div School, though, I realized there was actually a very famous person who studied there years before I was ever there, uh, who never got his painting put on the wall, who never had a statue or a bust made of him was actually a person that you've probably heard of because a famous movie was made about him years ago, 
but it was actually the Scottish sprinter by the name of Eric Little. I didn't know it at the time, but Eric Little had actually studied at New College, the Divinity School at Edinburgh. You probably know the name Eric Little from the 1981 movie Chariots of Fire, because Eric Little was a sprinter who ran for Great Britain. He was a Scotsman, but ran for Great Britain, and you know the story. Turns out that as the Olympics came in 1924, the heat for the 100 meters landed on a Sunday. And Eric Little decided, I'm not going to run on Sunday. And so he refused to run. What a lot of people don't realize, and the movie captured this a little bit, is the amount of scorn and the amount of sort of attack that was leveled against Eric Little for that decision. You have realized that this was the height of Britain's power in the early 20th century. Their empire was vast and wide, and for them, the Olympics was a chance to display their greatness. Look how amazing we are. And they expected Eric Little to go win the gold medal for God and country, but mostly for country. And don't let God get in the way. And Eric Little said, sorry, I love my country, but I love God more, and I won't run. Of course, what's amazing is that he ended up running a different race, the 400 meters, on a different day, the day he could run. It's amazing to think about it, because if you know anything about high-level athletes, they, you don't just switch events <laughs> a, few, a few weeks before the Olympics, right? You don't just say, well, I was going to do this, but I'm doing No, you've trained your whole life for that one event. How do you switch? And of course, Eric Little was expected to lose the 400 meters because he was not a 400-meter runner. He was a sprinter. But of course, if you've seen the movie, you know how it goes. It's interesting that day, Little actually drew the outside lane in the race which if you know anything about the 400, it's a staggered race. So the outside lane is the worst lane to be in because you can't see anybody else when you run. You can't pace yourself. All you have in front of you is just empty space, which is bad for a sprinter because they all thought Little would go out too fast from the blocks and probably burn himself out before he finished because he doesn't know how to run the 400. But it turned out to be the best spot for him because he didn't run with anyone else in vision. He ran for the glory of God. And as you know, he ended up winning that race. You know, when I think about that story and I read this passage, I can't help but see the similarities because Eric Little realized that the race he was running was more important than the Olympic race. It was a divine race. It was a spiritual race. And our author today in the book of Hebrews, as we just read, is saying the same thing. When you live the Christian life, you are running a race. You are running a sprint. And he also knows that it's important for his audience to get this message because if you know anything about the book of Hebrews, the audience he's writing to here is thinking about stopping the race. They're thinking about giving up the race. The audience was struggling with all kinds of things, persecution, doubt, wondering if any of these things were really true, wondering is Jesus really worth following? So our author writes this to an audience thinking about giving up. And truth be told, all of us need that, don't we? Because we're all running the Christian race, and whether you feel like your race is going well or going poorly, every once in a while you get that pain in your side, and you think about how far you have to go, and you're worried about whether you'll make it, and some of us just want to stop. Some of us don't want to run anymore. In fact, it doesn't take much looking around in our culture today to realize that there's many who seem to be running the race just fine, and then they stop running the race. We have a whole trend now of what we call deconversions in our culture, where people seem to be faithful Christians and later say, yeah, that's not for me, and they give up the race entirely. There's become somewhat of a stock industry now of former Christians who deconvert and now have their whole ministry built on deconversion. They stopped running the race. Now, what our author does today in this passage is he says, I'm going to help you run. 
If you're going to be an effective runner, if you're going to finish this race, really you're going to need three things. Now, I don't really do alliteration much in my sermons, but I got to tell you, it worked today. So I have three F's for you, three things you need to keep running, and we'll see this in the passage. You're going to need fans to cheer you on, you're going to need freedom from entanglements, and you're going to need a finish line to aim at. Fans, freedom, finish line. Let's just say a quick word about each of those. Look down on the very first verse, and you'll see the very first of those apps. Here's the first thing we need this morning if we're going to finish this race and run it well. We need fans cheering us on, and thank God we have those. Verse 1, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Now, in the ancient world, you might know that athletics was actually pretty common, and they were typically done in coliseums. If you've been to Rome, you've seen the major Colosseum there, but they're sort of junior versions of the Colosseum spread out throughout the provinces of the Greco-Roman Empire. And our author here is actually drawing upon Greco-Roman athletic imagery. Notice the language. You, when you run, you're surrounded by this group of people watching you. This is an invocation of the way you would run in the ancient world with a crowd cheering you on, most likely in a Colosseum that went completely around you on all sides. And our author is saying, I know that if you're going to run, you're going to need what all runners need. You need someone there cheering you on. Who cheers you on in the Christian life? A great cloud of witnesses. Now, we don't have time to do this, but if we were to go back and one chapter in the book of Hebrews to chapter 11, you would know what this great cloud of witnesses is, right? Because our author has very famously laid out this long list of all the saints that have gone before, what we famously call the hall of faith. And for an entire chapter before this, what has he done? He's laid out all those famous people who finished the race ahead of you. Noah, Abraham, Moses, Rahab, Samson, David, all having finished the race and now proverbially sit in the crowd cheering you on. But there's a difference. Here's what's interesting about this crowd and this is totally different than modern athletic events. Usually in modern athletic events, the crowd is there to watch the runner, but in the spiritual athletic event, it's the runner watching the crowd. Have you noticed in this context that even though you're running, he wants you to notice this great sort of collection of saints that have gone before you? And so he reverses it. It's not so much that they're there to watch you, but they're there for you to watch them. Why? Because we all need reminders that the race can be run. We all need reminders that the race can be finished. Sometimes we don't think it's possible. We don't think it can be completed. And we look back in that hall of faith, we're like, look at all the saints before that have run the race and they've crossed the finish line. Now make no mistake about it, if you were to go back to Hebrews 11, the hall of faith is not a hall of, of good works. It's not a hall of, look how amazing these people are. It's a hall of faith. Look at the trust that they gave to Christ in the midst of their life. It's not so much about them, but about the God who preserves them and gets them across the finish line. Years ago, I was at, uh, when I did my undergraduate work, I was at UNC Chapel Hill, which is either good or bad news for you, depending on what your fan base is. But when I was there, I would occasionally go to a basketball game in the Dean Dome. And of course, if you've ever been to the Dean Dome to see the Tar Heels play, you know that hanging from the rafters is this sort of amazing sort of collection of jerseys of the greats that have gone before. 
Why do they hang them there? Well, I'm sure they hang them there for us as the audience that look at them, but I'm, I'm, I'm convinced they mainly hang them there for the players. What happens when you're on the court and you're tired and you're exhausted and you're wondering if you could come back from your 10-point deficit? You look up into the rafters at the jerseys of the great players that have gone before and you say, oh, Michael Jordan, James Worthy, Sam Perkins, this can be done. And that motivates you to stretch even further. Do you realize when you run the race, you don't run alone. You run with a great history of saints that shows you it can be finished. But it's not just the history of the saints, it's this room, right? You don't run alone because you're in a room filled with other saints who are running. First point here this morning is simple. When you run the race, run in a crowd, right? A historical crowd and a crowd in the current day. Every time I think about running in a crowd, I think of that scene in Forrest Gump where they're running around in this big group, remember that? It's like, let that be you, but on a Christian perspective, run in a group and you're more likely to finish. But that's not the only thing. Look at a second thing in this passage that you need if you're gonna finish this race. Not just fans, but freedom. Freedom from entanglement. Look down at verse one again. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witness, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. All right, what's going on here in the second part of the verse? Our author, again, is referring to a very well-known thing in the Greco-Roman world. When you would be an athlete in the Greco-Roman world, and for that matter, anyone in the Greco-Roman world, the normal clothing you would wear would be somewhat of a robe, almost like a cloak or a large garment you would wear that usually would almost touch the ground. It was the normal type of clothing that they had in the ancient world. And that type of clothing was, was geared for a number of reasons, one of which is to keep the sun off you so you wouldn't get burned. But cloaks were common day, but not when you ran. When you run, you've got to shed the cloak. Can you imagine trying to run in a, in a robe? Well, you would get tripped up. And that's exactly what our author is alluding to here. Not only do you need a fans around you, but when it comes to running, if something's gonna keep you from running well, you gotta take it off. You gotta shed it, you gotta drop this proverbial robe around you. Now, what is it that he wants us to put off if we're gonna run better? What is he alluding to here in this sort of spiritual imagery of dropping a robe? Well, if you're a runner, some of you might be or may have been, and earlier years, what you realize is that when you run, you don't want a lot of clothes on, right? You want a, as little weight as possible so, so that you don't sort of get drugged down over time and your clothes get heavy with sweat. And no, you've got you to get it all off. So our author here mentions two things he wants you to drop. We're going to start with the, with the second first here. Look what he says. He says, lay aside every weight. I'm going to come back to that. But he says, also in any sin which clings closely. This is interesting language here. The old NIV had a great way of putting this. I loved it. It says, sin that so easily entangles. Okay, that's, that's the language I want you to catch here. Sin that is going to be like a robe. It's going to get wrapped up in your feet and trip you up. What's our author's point? Here's his point. What's the number one thing that's going to keep you from finishing the race? Sin that you won't shed. Sin that you won't get rid of. Sin that you keep as close to you as you, as you, as you can, but what you really should be is leaving it aside. The number one reason people don't finish the Christian race is they find a sin they like more than Jesus. And they won't drop it. They won't leave it. They won't put it down. 
Now look, we all struggle with sin. We all are, 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 are deeper sinners than we can possibly imagine. But I think the illusion here is not just to any sin, but sort of habitual, chronic, grabbing hold of a sin and saying, I'm not gonna ever repent of this. I'm gonna, I'm gonna hold on to this. This is my one area I won't give up. And that'll keep you from finishing the race because people end up losing their way when they love sin more than Jesus. You know, it's interesting in the Christian life, we often say that theology leads to action. That's true. Theology affects how we live. But don't forget, the reverse is true also. How you live affects your theology. In other words, how you live affects what you're willing to believe. If you start living a lifestyle or living in a pathway that's not honoring to God, suddenly your beliefs in God don't look nearly as convincing anymore. And you can find yourself losing your way because you've held on to something that should have been dropped. But notice our author doesn't mention just sin. Notice before that, he mentioned something else. Look, at, look back down at verse one. Let us also lay aside every weight. So this is interesting. Of course, sin is primary, but notice our author says, but, but anything that keeps you from running well. And the allusion here isn't necessarily to sin. This is just simply something that doesn't help you run. By the way, there's many things in life that aren't necessarily sin that can slow you down in the race, that can hinder you down in the race. And sometimes we're asking the wrong question. The question isn't necessarily, is this thing wrong or right? Maybe the right way to ask the question is, is this thing best? Does this thing help me run? Even if it's not technically something that I shouldn't do, does it enhance my ability to be a good runner for Jesus? And what our author is saying here is that, look, good thing or bad thing, if it's hindering the race, drop it. Ruthlessly leave it behind. The most important thing is to run well. Took my uh, kids last year uh, for the first time to the Grand Canyon. Some of you, I'm sure, have been there. It's an amazing thing. I, I told my son, I was like, you're not going to believe the vastness and the scope and the, 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 the wonder of this place, just its enormity. And we took part of a day to hike part of the way down in the Grand Canyon. If you've been there, you know that at the top of the canyon, there's all these warning signs everywhere, all over the place. And they're like, don't, don't go, don't try to go all the way to the bottom and up on the same day. Be very careful of, of bringing water and make sure that you are, are gauging your own ability to, go, to, to do this hike. You may not realize the Grand Canyon spends an enormous, I had the statistics on this once, the, the number of rescues that they have to employ every year of people trapped in the canyon is mind-boggling. Here's why. It's a reverse hike than what we normally do. If I were to say, let's go on a hike, you probably think we're going up, and then afterwards we're gonna come down. If you start a hike going up, the good news is you wear all your energy out on the way up, and you feel better on the way back down. But with the Grand Canyon, it's flipped. You actually start going down, and you think you're doing just fine, because you're going down. And so people go further, 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 thinking I feel great, and they don't realize they gotta go back up, 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 up. And here's the other thing you don't realize is it's cooler at the top, warmer at the bottom, so the further down you get, not only are you down deep, but it gets hotter. What happens every year? Every year when people get down there, they can't get out. One year we're down there hiking, and I noticed that, that it's not unusual to have people leave gear on the side of the trail. They'll just leave their backpack. They'll just leave their tent. They'll leave their pots and pans. They'll leave their gear, their equipment, expensive equipment, and they'll just leave it on the side of the trail. Why? Because it'd be better to shed that than not make it out. The most important thing is making it out. You're gonna dump everything you can to make it out. If you have to strip it all off, you'll strip it off to make it out, and you'll find gear just thrown on the side of the trail because people overestimate their own strength. 
Make no mistake about it, that's exactly what our author is saying here. When you run, if it's, if it's holding you back, if it's heavy on your shoulders, even if it's not a bad thing, it's not bad to hike with a backpack, but if it's gonna keep you from getting out, leave it behind. How do you run the race? You strip off all these things so that you don't get hindered as you run. But our author's not done. There's one final F here in our trio. Not just fans cheering you on, not just freedom from entanglements, but the most important thing at all, and that's our third thing, and that is a finish line. You can't run the Christian life just to be running. You have to be going somewhere. This is the thing about a race, and it was true in the Greco-Roman world. In the Greco-Roman world, there was a finish line. Um, it's not just run, run, run aimlessly. It's run with a very clear target. And in the Greco-Roman world, when you would run, the prize was at the finish line. And you would, when you would run, you would look to the finish line. You could see your reward at the finish line. Our author does the same thing. I want you to notice that we have a finish line, and it's the greatest finish line you can possibly imagine. Look down at verse 2 of your passage. So we have the fans. We've thrown off the things that entangle us for freedom, and now look at verse 2. We run the race looking to Jesus. That language is very intentional, right? Looking to Jesus as you run. This is clearly an allusion to the finish lines in the ancient world. If you're going to run, you have to know what your reward is. You have to know where you're going, what you're trying to accomplish. And in the Christian life, I want you to see it very plainly, is that Jesus is the finish line. And the reason, the reason Jesus is the finish line is because Jesus is the reward. Here's the amazing thing about Christ in this passage. He's not simply in the crowd. Notice that Christ isn't just a number one of the other saints that lived before and is cheering you on, go, go. No, that's not what's going on. Jesus is actually at the finish line because he is the finish line, and the reason he is the finish line is because he is the reward. He is what you get. Do you realize that the greatest hope of the Christian life is not just the things that God will give you, as wonderful as those blessings might be, but the hope of the Christian life is that you get God in the end, that you get Christ in the end. It's being with Christ. It's the beauty of Christ. It's the glory and wonder of Christ. That's where our focus needs to be. One of the reasons people stop running the Christian life, the race in the Christian life, because they, they think the reward is something else, and they may wonder if it's worth it. But if the reward is Christ, it's always worth it. I came across a, a very peculiar movie the other day. Uh, it was actually based on an earlier book. It, the movie's called The Walk, and it was never a big film in theaters, but it was actually a documentary uh, of, a, of a Frenchman by the name of Philippe Petit. And in 1974, this Frenchman did something really kind of nuts and crazy. Is that what he did is he snuck up in the middle of the night in the night to downtown Manhattan. And while the World Trade Center was under construction with its two towers, he and some friends ended up sneaking up there in the middle of the night to the very top of the World Trade Center and stringing a cable between the two that spanned the two towers high up over the city of Manhattan, which at the time, if I'm not mistaken, were the tallest buildings in the world. So by the time 6 or 7 a.m. rolled around and the sun peeks up over the horizon, there is this cable. <laughs> 
stretched between the two towers. And you're like, well, what in the world is that for? And then Philippe Petit happens to be a tightrope walker. And so with his balancing pole, he steps out on the cable over the top of the city of Manhattan. And it was such an amazing event that actually people began to stop and watch him. And then the traffic built up and the crowd formed at the base. And there he was. He went back and forth, back and forth for hours while the entire city watched. Now, of course, this was fundamentally illegal in every way, right? The police were called, but they couldn't do anything. What are they going to do? He's out, on the, he's out on the cable. You can't just go out there after him. You're not going to cut the cable, so you have to wait till he's done. So here's Philippe Petit walking back and forth, and finally when he's done, he comes off, he's arrested, and he's charged, of course, with whatever he's charged for, but they ended up writing a book about it and making a movie. And one of the things they said as they interviewed him later about this amazing stunt how in the world do you not fall when you are hanging out at the top of the world, so to speak, tallest building in the world, all of Manhattan laid out before you? And his answer was very simple, is that you never, ever, ever take your eye off the finish line on the other side. You don't look around for the view. You don't look down, you don't look back. You don't look around like a tourist. You are laser focused on where your destination lies. That is the Christian life, is it not? We have a great finish line. The person of Jesus who waits there for us. He is both cheering us on and at the same time our reward. And maybe more importantly than all of that, as the passage says, he's already run the race for us. He has finished it in our place. He has completed it on our behalf, and now he beckons us to come and join him. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we're grateful for a chance to reflect upon these things. Thank you for this congregation as they run the race. Encourage them, bless them, help us to remember that you await us as the great finisher ahead of us and the great reward for us. May that keep us running and running vigorously. We pray all this in Christ's name, amen.